Go ahead and grab a Bible and flip to Psalm 119. We're going to be at the very end. Psalm 119, verses 169 to 176. So the, the last section there. Psalm 119, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. As we call attention to the text, let's start in 1 verse 169. These are the words of God. Let my cry of lamentation come near before you, O Yahweh. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue answer with your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Yahweh, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your judgments help me. I have wandered off like a lost sheep. Search for your slave, for I have not forgotten your commandments. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded through Christ our Lord. And amen. Be seated. Walking in the way of the word, walking in the word, Psalm 119. We've come now to the longest chapter in Holy Scripture. I actually remember uh, growing up in church, thumbing through this passage, being fascinated because it was 176 verses long, and I just was blown away by that. I remember singing that song too, by the way, Keith, uh, in the 90s, just you know, as a as a early teenager, you know, brings back a lot of memories. Actually, spent a lot of time in, under the pews with matchbox cars as a kid, but still listening. And uh, I also remember being enthralled with John eleven thirty five because Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible. So you have the longest chapter, shortest verse. Uh, for some reason, those two things always grab my attention as an eight-year-old. Uh, just an interesting factoid. Um, one of the verses I memorized at a very young age was Psalm 119, 105. And of course, it was in the King James Version. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really understand the complexity of thys and untos and <laughs> some of those things. But I remember memorizing that as a young, young child. And the word of God, which is given to us in and as the inscripturated word, uh, according to that verse, it illuminates ourselves. We see our feet, meaning our goings, right? and it helps us with our direction. So we not only see our feet, we see the path that we're supposed to be walking. It helps us walk in the Word, and Scripture not only helps us walk in the Word, it helps us walk by the Word. So God in His sovereign grace, uh, just thinking about this, it, He impressed upon me at a very young age the importance of His Word and the tremendous value of learning how to walk in the Word. And, and children, you too here today, uh, you must know just how vital and important it is to study the Bible, to learn the Bible, uh, to memorize the Bible, and frankly, to master the Bible. 
there was a gentleman who told me when I was in Bible college, you know, you need to master the Word of God. And whatever, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit used that like a, like a sledgehammer to bludgeon my heart. And, and like, I've never forget that phrase. You need to master the Word of God. So develop a hunger for it and seek to master it, to know it. And it starts, I think, in Psalm 119 here. Now, the Apostle Paul, he says in 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, he says, Be diligent or study to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That is, studying the Bible requires a certain diligence because as you labor and work in the world and all the various aspects that we do, handling the truth will be required of you. So it doesn't matter what job you do, how you pay the bills, what, how, whatever you're doing, you, you're going to be required to know how to handle the truth. You're going to be put in situations where you need to have the wisdom of the word implanted in your heart so that you know how to respond. And that can come at any moment in any day. So do not neglect to study God's word. Um, Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 reads, For Ezra had set himself, excuse me, had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statue and judgment in Israel. So Ezra's uh, heart was inflamed with a desire to know and obey the living God. And the means by which he was to do this was the active study of Yahweh's law word. I think Spurgeon says it best. Spurgeon said, If grace has given us the heart with which to will, it will also give us the hand with which to perform. Fantastic quote. So the Word of God, therefore, is to be studied, and it is to be studied in order to be practiced. And that's the difficulty, because we're not just studying it for intellectual sake. Oh, I know certain facts about the Bible, or I know certain exegetical points. Those are great things to learn, but the whole point, that's what Ezra's doing, is to study the Bible so that you can practice it, so you can put it into practice, so that you know in, in all the situations you face every single day what it is God requires of you and how you are to respond. So what Psalm 119 does, Psalm 119 calls us to a Torah-centered life. A Torah-centered life. To be saturated by the Bible. The Hebrew word Torah, Torah, is, really can be translated as law. But the main emphasis of that word is in terms of instruction. So it, it does have a juridical definition when you think of law and, and God's justice and how he rights wrongs and those types of things. Um, Torah does have a role to play in that, but it's not just a juridical definition. There's also a pedagogical one. Um, it teaches us. It instructs us. It's a guide to help us learn. Torah is an expression of God's will. It's an expression of his nature and being. We know what God is like. We know who he, who he is, what he is like, what he expects from the world because he has revealed it to us in his Torah, his instruction. Uh, the Torah instructs us. It puts us in a structure. You can't really get out of it. You're in a structure, though. Torah is also God's medium for the world. Uh, or another way to say that is it's God's relational vehicle. God deals with creation. He deals with man in terms of his Torah. 
And both creation and man are to deal with God in terms of the same Torah, so the same instruction. So that's how God himself, as a pure, simple, holy being who is utterly distinct from creation, he deals with creation, he deals with man through the vehicle of his instruction, his Torah, sort of the middleman, the medium. That's why we say it's a medium. Since Torah means instruction, we can conclude that we must be taught by it. It's, I mean, it's what it means. It's literally, the, probably the law instruction might be the most best way, probably the best way you could, you could define it. It's the law instruction, which implies that we must be taught by it. Now here we have a chapter, the longest chapter in Scripture. There are 176 different ways of saying the same thing in different contexts. And you ought to probably consider reading it aloud like many Jews would do. Uh, for that pedagogical reason, it will teach you. It'll teach you repetition. We all know is good because it aids in learning. When you repeat things or you put it to music, especially, we have a way to bring it into our minds and our hearts in a unique fashion, and then we'll remember it. So we, we maybe even this week, go back and, and read the whole chapter and say it out loud. Read it out loud, and you'll see the repetition that's there. So for us, learning how to walk properly is the aim. That's the, uh, the issue here in our text. So from start to finish, from Aleph to Tav, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, I'll explain that in a minute. But that's what Torah piety looks like. And it's the type of piety, by the way, that touches on every area of life. We're not just talking about prayer and Bible reading, but prayer and Bible reading is important, and it is the foundation. But it's a piety that touches every single area of life. It's a it's a piety that rests on God's instructions because our general disposition is one of learning. We have to be taught. Left to ourselves, we're, we're diving our headlong into sin and destruction, right? We have to be taught. We have to learn. We must be taught the ways of God because the ways of man ends in ruin and death, destruction and misery. So you should cherish the Torah. You should cherish the Word of God. It should be very, very important to you. So consequently, following God's instruction means walking in liberty, which is what verse 45 calls us to. So let's dig into our passage. Just an overview real quick. Psalm 119 is what we call an acrostic poem. There are 22 sections in in the whole thing, 22 sections consisting in each section of eight lines and verses. And each line of those eight verses and verse sections pertains to one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's a remarkable work of art here. So eight verses in each section. Each section, if you have a Bible that has the um, heading, you'll see the, uh, it might show you the Hebrew letter, what it looks like. Um, but the, in our section here, we're dealing with the last letter of the alphabet, Tav. So each verse, each of those eight verses begins, the word begins with that. The Tav is the t sound in, in English. It's the T, and you would pronounce it that way. But each, each line begins with that, which makes it entirely unique. Now, our, by the way, kids, fun fact for you too. This is how we get the word alphabet. When we talk about the alphabet, we, we're, we're speaking... Um, both Hebrew and Greek. The first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Bet, and the Greek is Alpha and Beta. So that's where we get the English word alphabet. We just smash it together. It's the A and B, or we like to call them the ABCs because it sounds more fun with three letters involved. But it's the alphabet. Aleph, 
and bet, or alpha and beta, beta depending on which, um, <laughs> which language you're looking at. Now, this is a Torah psalm. It's a Torah psalm, and you may recall we've already done two of those. And 119, chapter 119, is just like Psalm chapter 1, and it's just like Psalm chapter 19, when we did Yahweh's law in Psalm 19. Psalm 119, it takes Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 and basically blows them up and enlarges them and, and makes it a big, big deal. That's why it's such a popular passage, because it, again, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Like Psalm 1, Psalm 119 here sees the law of God as being a life-sustaining power in the life of the believer. Remember Psalm 1 about like a tree planted near the stream. So there's that type of language that's brought back up in, in this. And like Psalm 19, Psalm 119 confesses the integral nature of the law and its sweetness and inestimable value, um, inestimable value for the believer. So we're kind of like rolling all those psalms into this one and making it a huge deal, a big party. That's how it goes. So let's look at our text. Look at verse 169. Let my cry of lamentation come near before you, O Yahweh. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips pour forth praise. For you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue answer with your word. For all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Yahweh, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that I may praise you, and let your judgments help me. I have wandered off like a lost sheep. Search for your, sa your slave, for I have not forgotten your commandments. Now the study of God's Torah is connected to prayer. So both ought to be used together regularly. We like to section those off. Like this is my time when I pray and this is when I read my Bible. Actually, they should probably go together. In, in the psalmist's mind, that they always go together. At the end of the psalm, we have a cry of lamentation. A cry of lamentation. This prayer goes before the author of the Torah and the writer here desires to have understanding according to your word. Imagine that. I need understanding God, but I need it according to your word. That's how you get yourself straight, right? Go, you need his word, God's word. And whenever suffering, by the way, it is entirely appropriate to ask God to give you understanding, but make sure it's in terms of his word and not in terms of what makes most sense to you. Because I'm sure you all can relate. That's, that's my natural pro proclivity too. Like, all right, help me understand, Lord, because in my mind, X, Y, Z, but... <laughs> Obviously, I'm smarter than you, Lord, <laughs> so I figured it out. We're tempted to do that, especially in suffering. We don't want to do that. We want to understand according to your word, which is difficult because we're prying into the mind of God who we can't read his mind. We have his word. We can trust it, but we don't know exactly. He's working something out together for good, Paul says, for those who love him. Now, in verse 170, the prayer continues as he submits his supplication before the Lord, asking for deliverance in the process and never forgetting his place. In verse 171, the writer desires for his lips to bring forth praise because God's teaching of, because of the teaching of his statutes. Notice the uh, body parts used here. We have lips in, in verse 172. His tongue is to answer God's word because God's commandments are righteous. 
He asks in verse 173 for God's hand to be ready to help because he has chosen to follow God's detailed precepts. So think about the interaction here, the prayer. Sometimes we don't know what to pray, but one thing you can pray is, God, would your hand, again, anthropomorphizing God, but would your hand deliver me because I'm trusting in your precepts? Would my lips pour forth praise because my heart doesn't really want to do that? There's a wrestling. You can feel it here. The psalmist also longs for Yahweh's salvation and deliverance because God's Torah is his delight. Verse 74, uh, 174. Can you say that God's word is your delight? Do you delight in it? That is a question to ponder. Getting to the heart, he then asks in verse 175, for his very own soul to live on that God might be praised. God, extend my life so that I can praise you longer. And then he asks for God's judgments to aid him in the process. Help me know how to discern life and the judgments that must be made based upon your judgments. Help me to think your thoughts after you. That's the tension here. And the last verse gives us a final perspective. Having wandered like a lost sheep, he asks God to actively search for him, a slave of Yahweh. Most translations don't use slave. They usually serve him, but slave is the best. That's why I like the LSB on this. But he asks for God to search for him, a slave of Yahweh, because even though he's lost, he hasn't forgotten God's commandments. He hasn't forgotten God's commandments. Now, that's just kind of a cursory overview. I want to talk about the whole chapter and, and deal with some things. There are eight synonyms for the law word of God throughout the entire psalm. We have the word law, decrees, statutes, uh, commandments, sometimes testimonies are in there, ordinances, word, precepts, and promises. So we have eight different ways that are, almost every verse, by the way, has one of those words in it. There's only a handful that do not. I think five it was, if I remember correctly. Um, there are eight lines per section, and there are eight expressions of the law. Coincidence? I don't know. We'll know maybe someday <laughs> in glory. But um, other words are used um, when you read this. Ways, paths, faithfulness. They're all descriptors and functions of those eight synonyms. So all over this passage... You have all of these precepts and statutes and commandments and judgments and law and word. They're repeatedly, repeatedly used throughout the whole chapter. So almost every verse contains one of these synonyms. So law or Torah refers to God's law, his instruction, and most importantly, his revelation, how God has revealed himself to the created order. Uh, decrees uh, or testimonies, again, depending on your translation, uh, those decrees, which were included in the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, serve as a witness to man, and thus they are dependable, they're reliable. Uh, the copy of the Ten Commandments was supposed to be in the Ark of the Covenant, um, along with a jar of manna and Aaron's rod that blossomed. Those three things were in the Ark of the Covenant as a witness, as a testimony to Israel. So when you read the word decrees, it's kind of got that, th that type of thinking in it. The statutes, when you see the word statue in the scriptures, those are inscribed regulations which deal with the permanence and eternal validity of God's instruction. So it might even be something as simple as scripture itself being a statue, something that was inscribed in the law. The elders of a community would have had that available to them, perhaps sections of Deuteronomy, so that they knew how to judge properly. 
Commandments refer to God's authoritative word and issuing orders to all of creation. So when we think of the word commandments in here, oh, how I love your commandments, your law, what we're saying is God has the authority to command certain things. And it's not like he just suggests it. He commands it. He has that authority. Ordinances or judgments speak of God's justice as the judge of the world and his handling of all of man's relationships. So when you have a conflict resolution that you're working through, you think through the ordinances of God, you think through the fact that God is the judge and we all must submit to him first and foremost. Uh, Word, the word word in here is the general truth of God that proceeds from his mouth. So when he talks about deliver me according to your word, give me understanding according to your word, we're asking God to review with us those truths that come from his very mouth. Precepts, they are detailed prescriptions. Uh, The word actually is rooted into the shepherding metaphor. Someone uh, someone like a shepherd who has to tend to his, his flock, there are prescriptions and precepts that are there for how, like procedural things. Um, and the word promise, of course, is self-explanatory. So those are all the words that are used throughout the entire chapter over and over and over and over and over again. And the passage helps us understand the various ways in which the law, word of God, the Torah instruction, anchors us. That's the thing we have to remember lips, tongue, hands, soul, all of life is to be brought underneath the authority of the Word of God. And what do we find in God's instructions? Well, here are a few things. Again, these are from the rest of the chapter. Within the Torah, we find God's wondrous deeds. That's in verse 27. We find His wondrous deeds. We even read that earlier in Psalm 78. The wondrous deeds God had done for Israel, providing manna and water in the wilderness, rescuing them from Egypt, and so on and so forth. God's law is worthy of our praise. Verse 62 and verse 175. All the way back at the beginning in verse 7, when we learn them, we can praise and thank God. Are you troubled and afflicted? Then be comforted and settled by them. Verse 31 and verse 50. So God's law is meant to settle you. Uh, We are encouraged to love God's law word. That's in verse 47 and 113. It's actually okay that you say, I just love God's law. I think it's great. (laughs) You should love it. You should have affection for it. Um, The commands are worthy of putting our hope in and waiting for. Verse 43 and 49. We should also long for and desire God's commands. Verse 131. Have you ever longed for and desired God's commands? God's word stands forever, just like Yahweh himself in verse 89. Just a a few smattering examples. When, When reading Psalm 119, we are encompassed about, wrapped up inside God's Torah like a warm blanket on a cold evening. There is much comfort to be had when we familiarize ourselves with the Scripture. The word doesn't exist only to satiate the scholar's inquiry. Rather, it's for the people of God with hearts full of joy, desiring to honor and worship and obey their king. We, we love, we desire, we observe, we keep, we treasure, we seek, we muse upon, we sojourn, we cling to, we walk in, we learn from, we are revived in the word of God. Those are all metaphors and examples of Psalm 119. And that's when I want to spend the rest of our time tonight. When the Bible uses this multi-perspectival approach to describing God's law word, 
It does so with the assumption that Scripture itself is the manifestation of God's Word. So Scripture itself is the manifestation of God's Word. That's why we call the Bible the Word of God. Some of you have Bibles on the front cover. It even says Holy Bible, right? Um, some, some don't, but we just that's what we call it. The Holy Bible is God's Word. It's the Word of God. God's Word is His speech act in the world, His chosen medium to relate to it. We've talked about this before. Creation Word, Incarnate Word, Inscripturated Word. God spoke at creation. Jesus came as a man. And God, the Holy Spirit, gave us um, the Word of God. And as such, God's Torah instruction becomes the resultant standard for all things. If you could say anything about our country right now, I mean, there are a lot of things we could say. Right? Abolish the IRS is on the front of that list. Um, <laughs> all of those things you could say. One thing that we can say is that we have a standard to appeal to by which we can then say the other things. God's medium in the world through His instruction, His Word, is meant to give us a standard. It is the standard for all things. So whatever your situation, we, we have to go back to the Word, whether it's suffering, a difficulty, um, consternation in a relationship, uh, whatever woes you can conjure up, whatever you're facing, the standard is there. Jesus is the standard. His word is the standard. And we have to go to it. And frankly, we have to insist upon it. Because far too many Christians would rather insist on something other than God's word as a standard. Whether that's how we should govern ourselves or our families, how we should govern as a nation, that's the standard. We should go, we should go to it. Now, the historical context of Psalm 119 is probably when Israel was coming back. Israel was coming back from the land of, of uh, from Babylon and Persia. They were coming back from exile, and that's why I referred to Ezra earlier. Now, remember, after the temple was destroyed by Babylon, um, they were taken off. Babylon had, had defeated Assyria, but the Medo-Persian Medio Empire defeated Babylon. The fall of Babylon took place, so the Jews were kind of mixed up in all of that. But eventually, Cyrus gave the decree they came back to the land. But the temple was destroyed. But for the way forward for those, uh, for the, the Hebrew people, was getting back to the basics of the Bible. There was a shift during the exile because the temple was absolutely ra raised. It was destroyed. Torah, not temple, became the most prominent thing for the worshiper. Scripture, not sacrifices, was most important. And the same thing happened even after the Romans destroyed uh, the, the temple again, the second temple that was built. The Romans destroyed in AD 70, just like Jesus had promised. And uh, suddenly the whole thing shifted away from temple sacrificial system to synagogue Torah. And the church was birthed into that. And that's why we gather when we sit around the Word of God together. So Torah, not temple. Scripture, not sacrifices. Psalm 119 is actually a reflection of this new priority. What, what became more important than anything was this. More important than any sacrifice made in a temple, the blood of bulls and goats. What was more important? The Word of God. There was a shift for them. Now, in our day and age, there's much confusion, and even in the Christian world, regarding the relationship between faith and works, uh, the relationship between law and grace, piety and social action, those things. And one thing that should be stated on the front end of this here is that, you know, you should want to live as God commands, right? 
You should want to live as God commands. And if you don't want that, you need to want to want that. And you need to do business with the Lord. But we should want to to do as God commands. And to be clear, also, to do so is not legalism. And the church is majorly confused about this today. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. To love is to obey. So it's not legalism to want to... To, uh, to obey the commands of God. And that's what the frustrating thing about critics of theonomy would love to say all the time, is you guys just want to impose, you want to impose a civil order on society. Well, yeah, because the one we have now is terrible. <laughs> but to, to want to do God's commands is, is not legalism in and of itself. Faith and obedience go together. True living faith moves in the direction of obedience. Okay? True living faith the only kind God gives, moves in the direction of obedience. Unbelief runs the other way. All right? And true obedience itself believes what God has said. So there's no like split in dichotomy here where, I mean, we can sort of talk about it in the abstract world, right? This is faith. This is obedience. And we have justification by faith alone. And then we have the doctrine of sanctification, where we, where we fight against sin, mortify our flesh, mortify sin, um, and then we try to sort of live holy lives in obedience. So we can tear them apart, but the fact is, they go together. Faith and obedience are not separate things. Uh, they, they, they work together. They run in concert together. And um, you think of the controversy around James and Paul. <laughs> Death, or let me say this, dead faith benefits no one, is what James says. You have works. You have faith. Show me your works. James is criticizing um, dead faith. It benefits no one. And dead works benefit no one either, Paul says. So instead, we are to hear the word and respond to it. We are to trust it and we are to hope for it. We should long to open up our Bibles we just should. So we can, we can run to it. And we run to it because a Scripture-saturated life is a blessed life. A Scripture-saturated life is a blessed life. The Word of God commands, it comforts, and it promises. It rebukes, it wounds, and it warns too. It is a sword. And it cuts deep. But it's meant to. It commands, it comforts, it promises, but also keep in mind it rebukes, it wounds, and it warns. It's not going to let you stay in your sin. It's not going to let you stay in, your, in your, your, your disobedience. It's going to bring you out of that. And to exercise faith is to open yourself up to the storehouses of God. To exercise faith is to long for the Word. Now in this paradigm, there is no obedience that is immediately equated with legalism. So I mentioned this a minute ago, but to love is to obey, and to obey is, is to return that love. Our culture with this whole love is love and acceptance and tolerance and the whole egalitarian lust for, for you know, five billion different genders and all this stuff, uh, there, there's no end. It's, it's tomfoolery, and in in, that's putting it nicely. Um, <laughs> but there's, you can't separate law from, uh, love from law. The two go together. Uh, in fact, Paul says love is the fulfilling of the law. So obedience to Christ is love. That's the expression of love. If you want to exhibit love for Christ, obey Him. But the opposite is true too. To love Christ is to obey Christ. 
So obedience is trust in and loyal to the grace that's been given to you in the gospel. Christ has died for your sins. He's risen from from the grave. He rules and reigns as King and Lord. You, you, you obey him, so that means you trust him. You trust him with your life. No matter what you face, it's his to deal with and sort out. It's not yours to try to you know, panic about. Right? Easier said than done. But obedience is loyalty to, it's trust in that grace, that fountain of grace that you've been given in the gospel. True faith is pure trust, and when coupled with loyalty, it embodies covenant faithfulness. And all of it is done in the context of grace all in the context of grace. There's no such thing as jump on the treadmill, perform for me, circus monkey, and then I'll love you. That's not how God works. It is all of grace. If you want to flip, look at verse 66 real quick. I want to point this out. Verse 66, just a couple pages back. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. See the word believe there? I want you to note this. This is faith-seeking understanding. One of the great church fathers, Augustine, he said, I believe, help me understand. And this is a perfect example in Scripture of that paradigm. We don't go to the unbeliever and say, you know, you you have no faith commitments, you just don't understand, and then we try to make them understand. No, 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 no. It's faith-seeking understanding. It's always that. It's always been that. Faith-seeking understanding. I believe, Lord. Help me understand. Help me sort it off. I believe. I trust you with what you're doing now in my life. And things are stressful. (laughs) It's hitting home here. But I trust you. Help me understand it. The great battle of our age is the Word of God versus the words of men. This has always been the case ever since sin entered into the world. Who will we believe most? The Word of God, which is the explicit revelation of the triune God, or will we believe in the ever-changing words of men? Would you rather the Word of God or a vice president word salad? What would you like? And with all the critical theory nonsense that has fueled the deconstructionist movement, the apostasy aspect, that is, it's no wonder that people are genuinely confused today. They're utterly confused about the doctrine of Scripture. They're utterly confused about how God speaks to us. I love the meme, you know, I really want God to speak to me. The guy says, well, read your Bible. Well, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want him to say it audibly. Read it out loud. <laughs> then you'll get it. That's, that's how we hear from God. But when we're not immersed in Scripture, we, we, we go this whole other route and we're confused. And the, a lot of people are confused. They're confused about truth, so they relativize it. And they relativize it because they do not appreciate and thus they do not submit to the fixed Word of God. The immaculate Word of God. The impeccable Word of God. The unchanging Word of God. See, when, when God's Word, when it's apprehended by faith, produces wisdom in us, health in us, right? It rearranges our thoughts so we're not focused on the wrong things. Um, It is also rootedness for the believer. And alternatively, the words of men, also apprehended by faith, because you have to believe that they know what they're talking about, right? That produces folly, it produces injury, and vapidity. It's just gone. It's here today. It's, It's dust. Here today, gone tomorrow. 
And all men everywhere are looking for a fixed and immovable word on which they can build their lives, but Scripture is the only thing qualified for the job. Everyone is looking for that. Every single person. That's why they threw fraudchi on the TV every night. They're looking for a fixed, immutable, unchanging word that can help rescue us and deliver us. It's everywhere. That's what they need. That's what's lacking. And that's what they run to. The words of man every single time. Which means then we must adhere to the formative power of the word of God. The word of God is a handrail steadying you so that you can walk in the formative power of the word of God. It's also like a walking stick, which helps you move about in your life in wisdom. It's the religious root unity of your life, which sees to it that you know who you are, and that is based upon a knowledge of who God is. And the Holy Spirit works in us, driving us back to the very word that he inspired and created in order to mold us, to shape us, form us into the image bearers we are called to be, to be truly human in God's truly remarkable world. In, in, in this, this is sort of my like summation of, of Psalm 119. Christ is the professor. Scripture is the syllabus. Okay? Creation is the classroom. The law is our major. Our hearts are the blackboard. The spirit is the chalk. All of life is learning to walk in the wisdom and instruction of the word of God. The the teaching deals with the teacher. The teacher deals with the teaching. The students wrapped up in all of it. That's a scripture immersed life. And the works of God reveal who God is and what he has done for his creatures. And they are outlined for us in the inscripturated word, in the word of God, the Holy Bible. Now, to exalt in the curriculum, to to uphold the truthfulness and and veracity of Holy Writ is to exalt in the professor. It's not an idolatry to say, well, this is the Word of God, and we love it, and we immerse ourselves in it, and we grow in it. Oh, but you're making a a terrible mistake. You're making an idol out of that thing that sits in your lap. No, 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 no. To glory in it is to glory in God. To glory in it is to glory in God because God has revealed himself in this manner, in this way. So, we glorify God when we bask in His Word. I want you to note something. And later this week, if you get a chance, you want to read through it, pray it out loud. You know, read through it. Over and over and again, there's a word that is used. I mean, it's just everywhere. And the word is your. Your. Your precepts, your commandments, your righteous judgments, your statutes, your word, your ways, your mouth, your law, your hand, your testimonies, your wondrous deeds, your, your righteousness, your slave, your salvation, and so on. On and on and on. Read it this week. And, and with that in mind, maybe jot it in your notes. Note how many times the word your is used. That word your is everywhere, which tells us that this is deeply personal. It's deeply personal. And this is how to live a God-centered life. To glory in your word, your statutes, your testimonies. Now, as I stated previously, the, the inscripturated word is one form of the word of God which has been given to us, Christ being himself the incarnate word, and of course we have the creation word of, of Genesis 1 and 2. And here in our text, that is precisely what is being exalted here. The inscripturated word of God. The word of God is being held up in its proper place. So what about it? Well, first, Scripture is God's instruction. 
as expressed in a wide variety of ways, and it is important as what we call the forming form and the normative norm, and I'll explain that here. Forming form, normative norm, meaning that the Word of God, the Bible, as a revelation of God given by the Holy Spirit, is a form that shapes all of reality, a form itself that gives form to everything else. And it illuminates the ethics necessary as a norm in itself, providing truth in what is normative for all of that reality. Does that make sense? It is a form given to us that forms everything else. It is also a norm that norms everything else. So norms, by the way, norms are what ought to be how things ought to be. You have facts that can only be interpreted by God. There's no brute, brute factuality out there that's uninterpreted. God knows all facts. He's given those facts. But there's a norm element to it too. What ought to be the case? And that's what Scripture does for our lives. In other words, Scripture tells us what is true. It tells us what is true and what is right. This is what is true about God, about nature of man, about sin, about the atonement of Christ, about all of these things. And not only this is what's true, but this is what is right in a world that has gone wrong. The law word is situated within God's covenantal relationship to the worshiper. He is unified to it, just like he is united to God. That's why he can say, your, 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 your. Give me understanding according to your word. He is united to him. There's a bond. It's deeply personal. The law word points us to Christ, and only when we are immersed in Scripture do we then have a true faith. And, and friends, your, your life simply cannot be shaped in any meaningful way apart from the very means by which God shapes all of reality. God's self-revelation means that the word is communicated to us um, perspicuously, that is clearly, as a means of availing ourselves to his will and pattern for living. God has given you his words so that you know who you are, who God is, and what God expects of you. It is, it is clear communication from God how to obey him in our living, in our doing. We must set our sights on this word, apprehending it with our hearts so that we may have delight. We must, we must capture it with our minds every single day so that we may have wisdom. We must apply it with our hands so that we might be like Christ who poured himself out for others in service of others. And we must know it so that we can proclaim it. The law itself expresses the will of God, but it also expresses the steadfast faithfulness, mercy, and love of God. It's laid out before us. So friends, take it up in your life. Take it up in your life. Walking in the word means loving the word in your hearts. It means pursuing it, even if you're, you're too tired or, or too overwhelmed or too wounded or too preoccupied or too distracted. It means prioritizing the Word of God so that you are familiar with what it is God demands for you as a child. Children, know the Word so that you can know what God demands from you as a child or a parent, a husband, wife, father, mother, a paper shuffler and floor sweeper. What does God demand of me? We need to know that. And Torah strips away the veneer of human self-worship that we are prone to in order to, to implant within us this longing for the will and instruction of God and self, self-service and self-sufficiency. It ends in, in death. <laughs> Faithfulness to God 
from a heart set aflame by God begets blessing and comfort. So church, listen, the threat of autonomy is serious and ubiquitous. The threat of autonomy is everywhere. It is very serious. You are going to be tempted. What's, what's our cultural thing going on right now? I mean, it's the same old thing, repackaged. Be you. Just be whoever you want to be. Explore the depths of your own heart and be self-sufficient. That's the cry. For the Christian, we're like, no, 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 no. That is a way to death. That is a way to destruction. Self-destructive, autonomous living is only really challenged when God's Torah instruction, His law word, takes root in the heart. And if you are not rooted in the word, then autonomy is laying claim to your life at this time. How many of us, honestly, let's, I mean, we, we, I know you don't have to raise your hands, but I guarantee you, you all will. How many of us have gone into a situation having not prayed and not sought the counsel of the word of God? How many of us have, day after day, wake up, not seeking the will of God in His Word and not seeking the counsel of, of God in prayer. We do it, don't we? And we want the blessing and comfort of it, but we don't use the means to get it. See, if, if you're not rooted, autonomy is there. So friends, go to the Word. Take your Bible everywhere you go. Just take it with you. I mean, yeah, I know you can put it in an app, but get a nice Bible and just carry it with you. Because how many times you're like, I'm going to read the Bible. Oh, notifications going boom. And then you get distracted and you really haven't done what you set out to do. Pour yourself over it. Memorize it so that you can keep your way pure. Young men, I'm talking to the te early teens. Men, listen to me, young men. Verse 9, you better have memorized. I'm telling you, do it right now. Memorize verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. If you want to avoid shipwrecking your next few years as you become an adult, avoid shipwrecking your faith by seeking and guarding your life according to the word of God. Guard your hearts with it, for it is a veritable fortress. Learn to flip open the Bible long before opening up your social media apps. Trust me, it's a good pattern to have. Long before you turn on the TV, struggling with prayer in your life, use this psalm. Read it out loud over and over and over again. Uh, pray it out loud, too. Uh, uh, looking for spiritual refreshment into your life, go to Psalm 119. Meditate on it. Do you need wisdom because you, you, you're embarking in foolishness? Well, look to the psalm. Walking in the Word is a spiritual discipline that requires practice and attention. You, nobody just gets up and runs a marathon. It takes practice. You have to give your attention to it. No one becomes a master of the Word of God by ignoring it, not reading it, and not bathing yourselves in it. Run to it so that it can wash over you so that you can know it, so that you can obey it, and thus you can open up the treasures that are inside of it so that you can be blessed because of it. And know it so that you can proclaim it. Because here's the thing. It's the only way men are saved. The proclamation of the Word of God. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. Day and night. There's the challenge before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for you to teach us your statutes.
Raise us up according to your word. Remove false ways from us. Graciously grant us your law. Your word tells us that that you have placed your judgments before us, and so we ought to cling to your testimonies. We shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge our hearts. God, there's so much richness in your word. Help us to mine it so that we can be rich. Lord, I pray that you would help us and aid us. May your spirit prompt us so that we don't waste our days. There's definitely never going to be the excuse that we never had time to pray or never had time to read your word, not when we've had time to do all sorts of things. So help us to prioritize. Give us the conviction, Lord, in our hearts that we can love your word. Revive us so that we can, we can recount your ways so that we can be blessed in it. Would you grant us that grace today in Christ's name? Amen.